Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode on Pitch Camp podcast series. This is episode 28 and uh, today we are going to be talking to one very interesting uh, founder from Singapore, uh, Mr. Momo Ong, who is the founder of headsup.ai and very excited to have his perspectives while he is building up a sales tech uh, startup. Um, you know some very unique perspectives and unique insights as uh, as a product management uh, background turned into a founder and you know trying to build a sales tech uh, company out of APAC. So a lot of interesting insights in this episode. Uh, very excited to have uh, all of you listen in into Pitchcamp podcast. Uh, a little bit about Pitchcamp. Uh, I'm Biblesh Gundaram and I'm the chief evangelist and coach at Pitchcamp. Our entire focus and our mission is to enable 10,000 founders on helping them to share their ideas with the world better. We do this through founder-led sales uh, coaching for early stage uh, startups to help them build a successful you know, sales engine, either through a product-led growth engine or through a customer-led uh, growth engine. So we do this through uh, trainings and coaching uh, programs, primarily focused at early stage startup. So if you are one of those startups and need some help, uh, you know, do hit us out at pitchcamp.in and we'll be happy to get in touch with you. So welcome to uh, today's uh, Pitchcamp uh, podcast, uh, Momo. Uh, very excited to have you today on, uh, you know, on our Pitchcamp podcast. And uh, you know, I'm glad that we had one of our previous speakers uh, refer you into us. So welcome. Thank you. Um, glad to be on this with you, Bimlash. Thanks so much for taking time to chat. Awesome. So talk to us a little bit about your background, uh, Momo. So what's uh, first, what's uh, headsup.ai and uh, some backstory about what made you to get into entrepreneurship? Yeah, let me start with my background. So right out of college, uh, I joined a company called Fiscal Note, based in DC as employee number nine. Wow. So what Fiscal Note does is it's a B2B software as a service company focused on the government tech vertical. And so there, I met my co-founder, now co-founder, early. He was employee number three. And so together, as early employees of Fiscal Note, we scaled the organization from nine to, by the time I left, more than 100, 120 individuals, having raised 30 million plus in venture funding. And so my role at Fiscal Note was initially as a data scientist, but very quickly, eventually, as a product manager. And in that product capacity, I built out the product management design as well as analytics teams and worked very closely with Earl, initially who was an engineer and eventually was also a product manager overseeing analytics to build out uh, Fiscal Note's analytics stack. And so Earl, when Earl was working on the analytics stack, he noticed specific problems there that when we decided to start something six years later after we met, we validated that and it, figured, and it, it appeared that that was still an endemic problem in a lot of companies. Additionally, there were some specific tailwinds that we can go into later now that made it a really good why now proposition to start the company. And so given Earl's expertise, building that in-house, giving Earl's expertise, identifying the problem and solving it in Fiscal Note, we thought that it made sense to do it outside and to productize it for everyone. Wonderful. So uh, talk to me a little, little bit about your product management experience. You were a product manager at uh, Facebook. And, and at what point in that journey uh, you know, do you see from a data scientist to a product manager and then now to being a founder? How, how, how is this transition helping you today? 
Yeah, let me speak about the, the latter part of your question because I think that is also pretty relevant to my founding something. So when I joined Fiscal, no, we were extremely scrappy. And as a result of that, I played a lot of hats. I wrote some engineering code, did some data science, and also helped the CEO specifically on a lot of the business items as well. So when there was a need to oversee product management or if there was a need for product management at Fiscal Note, that was a natural next step for me to do because I had been doing that in a in a you know in a less 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 formal form already. Okay. So that was what motivated my transition into product management. The fact that you know, I would stay late uh, every day working with the founders, thinking through the business, thinking about how to scale the business, thinking about the product, in addition to my engineering, core engineering and data science functions. So that's how I transitioned pretty organically into product management. And as the first product manager at Fiscal, I was responsible for bringing the product from pre-product market fit, $0 in revenue, to by the time I left, mid-seven figures in recurring revenue. Okay. Yeah, and in addition to that, I hired, scaled, and built the product management organization from scratch. So building, hiring individuals, training them, um, scaling them. In addition to that, I also built and scaled up design and also analytics functions. Yeah. Fantastic, awesome. So uh, let, let me pick your uh, thoughts here. So in your opinion, uh, you know, what, since you had this amazing experience of building a product management uh, function from scratch, from pre-revenue to you know, leaving the company at a post-revenue stage, what were some of your key metrics to to understand product market fit? Yeah. Or what were your leading indicators? So, the a leading indicator is is customer satisfaction, customer happiness. And that can be dimensionalized in many different ways. It could okay. indicate, it could, you can see this from, for example, the feedback you get from customers um, when you interact with them and do user research. It could be from customer success, uh, you know, their feedback as they inter interact and successfully upsell or renew the product. It can be the market pool that you start to see as folks know about you and reach out to you for the product, right? And it can also most importantly be the product usage signals where we see that there is recurring consistent usage in the product. Now, how we got there, um, there was not a step change. Uh, there was not a step change uh, resolution, right? Some products out there, there was no product market fit. And suddenly when they made one or two changes, because of that, those changes, the product sold. For us and specifically for me, my experience at FiscalNote was that it was very gradual. Initially, the product wasn't used. There were a couple of different user interface and also data deficiencies. As we plugged those, as we improved the data, as we engaged the users in the surfaces and formats that they wanted, then the value prop got clearer against the correct persona. And then we started incrementally seeing more interest, more adoption, more metrics, less churn, more upsell, et cetera. So, I would say specifically for our legislative tracking product, we probably, if you were to determine what is the, where is the binary switch, you know, from pre to post product market fit, mm -hmm. that didn't occur for one and a half, two years after the company was founded. And okay. I think this is consistent with what Jason Lemkin says, as a SaaS founder, it takes up to 24 months to get to that initial state of product market fit. And, and by the way, that is only for the first product. Every incremental product that right. you build 
if you need to localize or internationalize, those are additional steps where you have to re-obtain product market fit. Right, and also change in segment, right? Yes, that as well, as you yeah. go up market. Fantastic, awesome. So with this, uh, you know, with this sort of a background, what was a trigger moment to, to start Heads Up? Yeah, so I've always wanted to start something and my motivation for that was being part of the Fiscal Note family, seeing my boss, the CEO, scale this company, right? Like I was part of the executive team. I was part of um, the first couple of founding, first founding team. And I really experienced that as an employee. And I, I, saw, I saw everything being built on the product side. I saw the money being raised. I saw the functional organization, sales, success, marketing, design, product, all being built out. I felt that I had the knowledge and the know-how to be able to replicate that. And so that was why, that was what motivated me to years later start a SaaS business. Okay. And how did you zero in on this particular problem at Heads Up? Yeah, that's also a very good question. So when Earl and I started talking and working together, we knew that we wanted to build for the customer facing persona. Mm -hmm. And the reason was twofold. First, we had an interest in that persona. And second, we had a lot of experience at FiscalNote building the tooling for that persona as the company rapidly scaled. Okay. So the needs of sales at Series C are very different from the needs of sales at Series A, B, and C. And we were privy to those interactions. And so we felt that we had strong empathy with such personas to be able to build tools that would successfully support them. The other, yeah, so those were the two reasons why we decided initially to focus on the customer facing persona. But when we double clicked into the core needs of sales individuals and customer success individuals, what we learned was that they didn't yet want another CRM. They didn't yet want another customer success tool. We found that the gap that existed in market today was that there was so much data within an organization, but none of that data was accessible nor actionable for the go-to-market teams. So that was the problem we lasered on, right? Coincidentally, this was also the problem that Earl had identified and tackled while at FiscalNote overseeing analytics. So okay. because of that, we had familiarity, we had done it before, we had empathy with the persona, and lastly, because of Earl's expertise on the analytics side, and because of my interest in analytics, I had explored analytics and data infrastructure ideas previously and also invested in a couple of deals in that vertical. Um, that made for the perfect fit. Awesome. This is a question, you know, maybe I should have asked it a little earlier. So give us a brief about what's, what does Heads Up AI currently do and what's your vision on Heads Up AI? And then we'll, we'll go forward from there. Yeah, let's, let's start with the, what we currently do. So Heads Up AI syncs data from your cloud data warehouses and other data sources within the company downstream to your customer-facing tools. So sorry, I mean tools that customer-facing personas use. So the sales forces and the gain sites of the world. Now, why is that data important? The reason that data is important is because you can, for example, create product lead scores that allow sales individuals, like account executives, to prioritize which leads to go after. Mm -hmm. Likewise, on the customer success side, product usage data within the organization are leading indicators for churn, upsell opportunity, and generally the healthiness of a customer. Yeah, given, that, given the fact that all of this data is being collected today in every digital native company, we find that there's an opportunity 
to allow the client-facing individuals, client-facing personas, to take advantage of that data to better meet revenue objectives and to better serve customers. Got it. So you're, you're focusing on a micro use case, which is a gap in the entire uh, sales funnel activities, right? Can we, can we level set on what you mean by um, micro use case? Uh, when I say micro use cases, you're picking up one, one, act, one step in the activity of an entire sales funnel, right? Which um, is the lead scoring. Is, is that a fair understanding? Yes. Um, but in, in the long term, you could imagine that there are different types of scores mm -hmm. to motivate different actions. Sure. Right. Sure. So, for example, marketing has certain scores to qualify and rank leads, right? And the, the leads that are qualified the highest currently become MQLs. Right. These are then taken by sales and they're ran, the, the sales runs with them. Um, but there's also ways to score, for example, sales leads as well, especially based if they're free to freemium tiers. You can you can score them based on their um, whether these leads currently use the product, right? And likewise, post sale, there's opportunities to to score as well. So right. we think that the concept of scoring is less so of a point solution in the funnel and can be can be integrated into many different parts of the funnel. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, today it's primarily used only between MQL and SQL. Right? Yeah. And, and, and the customer success side to identify healthiness of the customer. But we think there's many opportunities there. Yeah, especially when there's so much data being collected within and without of the organization. Got it, fantastic. So when you zeroed in on this problem, talk to me about um, uh, you know, some of the insights that you gathered when you started reaching out to you know, early users as part of your research process. What were some of the insights? How many people did you uh, speak to, uh, interview with, to understand if this is a really pain point, you know, that they are willing to, one, that they face and that they are willing to pay. Yeah. So conservatively, we've probably spoken to more than three, 400 go-to-market individuals, go-to-market leaders by this point. Wow. And okay. I would say, you know, in terms of core insights, it depends on the seniority of the leader, the function, the specific organization, right? Now, let's let's say for our specific um, ideal customer profile, which is, by the way, Series A and above product-led growth companies, so companies that have a free-to-paid conversion um, workflow. I would say if you ask me the core insights, it would be, number one, that uh, the current ecosystem for go-to-market tools um, doesn't is not optimized and not built for product-led growth go-to-market motions. And as a consequence, we see existing go-to-market teams string together existing tools in a hacky manner to serve their specific needs. Okay. I think that's number one. Now, double-clicking into that, why is it that the current tools underserve um, the said persona in the said tailwind of PLG? We think one of the main reasons is that the tools are not equipped to handle the explosion of data. So in PLG, in, in, the, in, the, yeah, in the world of product-led growth, we have an, an explosion of data in two primary axes. First, there's, increasingly number, there's an increasing number of data points collected per user. Not only are you recording just sales and marketing interaction data, you're also recording product usage data as well as billing data. So many more data points per user. 
The second axis is that there are many more users, right? Mm -hmm. A company like Notion or Figma might have millions, if not ten, tens of millions of free users. Right. All of those need to be recorded and taken account of for as well. So suddenly you have this explosion of data resulting in extremely poor signal to noise ratios. And so marketing sales and success with their existing tools, we found are um, not as well equipped as they can be to address and to do their jobs. So that's, not, that's the next insight. And as a, consequences of, as a consequence of that, actually, we think that there's going to be, well, actually, let, let's, just, let's just yeah stop at these two insights. I would say those are the two primary insights that we learned. And th those are actually the two insights on which we're building, um, we're building heads up. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. So how easy was it to reach out to all these, your GTM leaders? What channels did you use to, to reach out to them? What sort of, uh, you know, early resistance that you saw or, more, or many of them were incognizance with your intent in trying to research and solve this problem? Yeah. So the way we, we reached out via whatever channel we had, if we had prior relationships, obviously we engaged them. If we had potential investors or we had um, friends in our network, we asked them for introductions. But we didn't have one specific formal channel that worked. Okay. Uh, we did whatever we could uh, to get introductions, to network, to be able to get uh, in front of folks that mattered to us. Got yeah. And with regards to their reception and their response to what we pitch, Generally, if the initial customer profile is, is correct, we saw quite a warm and common understanding of this. For example, we recently spoke to a post-IPO company, B2B SaaS IPO company that actually just exploded during COVID. And one of the leaders on the sales enablement side had independently of us conceived of a very simple, similar idea and identified exactly the same pain points and opportunities. Mm -hmm. So that, for example, we like to think is independent validation of our approach. Right, absolutely. That makes a whole lot of difference when one of your target personas is exactly looking to solve the same problem that you are working on and they would want to solve, to have that solution right in their hands now. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> That's a great place to be in. Fantastic. So uh, you're based out of Singapore and you know, you're talking to GTM leaders, I'm guessing across the world, uh, predominantly between US and Singapore right now. And did you see uh, this problem statement alignment to be similar between both these regions? When I say Singapore, we can take APAC as well. Yeah. So I would say that our market, first and foremost, is the United States and okay. second, uh, the European Union. Okay. Because there, that's where software as a service is most mature. And that's also where product-led growth is, is the most mature, right? Cost of customer acquisition has exploded over the last couple of years in SaaS right. in those two regions. And therefore, that's, there's a need to... And also, in addition to that, there's a democratization of the buying cycle. There's much more focus on the end user. And so because of that, product-led growth has, has, has taken off in those two regions. In Singapore, the, the enterprise and the B2B market generally is much more nascent, uh, but we're starting to see a couple, you know, very strong founders building B2B businesses here. But I would say even those predominantly still sell into the U.S. Yeah. So you could see, you could, you, could, 
you can classify them essentially as US-like B2B SaaS companies. And I believe we're starting to see that, that, that a similar pattern in, in, in India as well, although India is much more mature than Southeast Asia at this point with regards to that. Okay. Interesting. What have you seen as some of the fundamental shifts in, you know, in customers uh, adopting to new SaaS solutions and how these have changed during uh, the whole transformative last year, right? Which is, which is the entire COVID year. From I'll ask you this question from two perspectives. One, as a founder, some of the trends that you're seeing in SaaS. And second, as a product manager, what are you seeing as some of the trends that uh, some of these SaaS companies are looking to adopt uh, in, in a COVID world. So as a founder, one of the trends that we specifically bet on is the centralization of data within a cloud data warehouse. Mm -hmm. Because that makes it very easy to connect simply to that cloud data warehouse to gain access to all the data that we need to send downstream into the client-facing team's applications. Now, we see that the adoption of cloud data warehouses and also the utilization of cloud data warehouses beyond just simply an analytics store has increased in many companies. Even companies that are series A, series B, we see are either talking about adapting a data warehouse or already adapting a cloud data warehouse. So we've definitely seen that um, tailwind in market. In addition to that, basically every investor or founder or client that we talk to also are very aware of that, are very much aware of that as well. So, you know, there's word of mouth in the street and in market, we also see this adoption happening. So that's one tailwind as a founder um, we've, we've, we definitely um, bet on and we, that, that we've, we've identified. All right. Tailwind uh, that as a founder, um, you know, I've been able to work off is, is basically the, the fact that most go-to-market processes are done over the internet now via right. Zoom and, you know, whatever tools that folks use, right? And so that impacts me and us in two ways. One, personally, because I'm sitting out of Singapore, I can just as successfully sell into the U.S. as someone sitting in the U.S. because everyone is remote. Right. Two, it means that there's ever more amount of data being recorded, right? And it makes, and it worsens the signal-to-noise ratio, as I mentioned earlier, making this an even bigger opportunity for Heads Up um, to tackle. Fantastic. I like the point that you have been able to zero in very nicely on your ICP, right? You're, you're targeting SaaS companies, which are above Series A and above, and who have a product-led uh, growth as their primary function of growth, right? Well, what are you seeing, uh, some of the trends on how product-led growth itself is changing now? Or has that remained the same over the last couple of years with the SaaS becoming more prevalent in B2B? So, first of all, there's a democratization of knowledge about how to run the product-led growth process across multiple functions in the company, from product all the way to the client-facing teams. Mm. So, for example, companies that we've spoken to that are you know, tier one PLG companies like Figma, Notion, and Airtable um, are extremely sophisticated in their thinking, in their consumption of data, and in, in their using that data to motivate client-facing actions. I think we've previously seen this similar level of sophistication at more mature companies like Dropbox and also Asana, but uh, that, that level of sophistication has since um, 
been distributed to other companies that are relatively small as well. So I'd say number one is increased sophistication and increased knowledge dissemination around product-led growth. Um, I'd say number two is that top-down go-to-market motion companies are also exploring bottoms-up channels as well. Okay. So we have a lot of folks that we've talked to a couple of companies that are relatively mature, have an existing product with, with you know, with resonance uh, in, in at the enterprise level, and they're considering how to either A, utilize product-led growth as a means of customer acquisition uh, towards enterprise or even mid-market, or B, to see whether there's a subset or a simplified product that, that can directly serve mid-market and make that a sustainable revenue channel as opposed to just being a lead channel. Right. Do you think it's, it's important for a product-led uh, growth company to always go with a freemium business model? If it's not a freemium business model, it is a limited trial or a right. Yeah, I, I would say, and I, I mean, there's there's really good articles about the trade-offs between free, always free versus trial, right? But the the nuance and the gist of this is that uh, if and, and on, on the flip side, you can also make a mistake. I think similar to what some companies have done in the past, where they've given way too much value on the free trial, rendering very limited. Um, need or pressure to move up market, uh, sorry, right. move a, a paid version, right? So there's always risks uh, and, and trade-offs there. But the, I, I, think, I think in order to design a PLG motion that makes sense, one must start from first principles, right? What is the purpose of PLG? What are we trying to solve here? Are we trying to have, um, are we trying to, for example, create a rapid fan base that consistently uses the product and can socialize the product elsewhere, right? Which which really helps with like word of mouth brand dissemination, or are we trying to eventually upsell this 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 fan base or this you know free tier into some sort of paid tier, or is the free tier some sort of lead generation for sales individuals to go top down and and execute the pincer go to market motion right? Understanding what the goal of the PLG motion is will allow the company to successfully solve for the outcomes. And the outcomes are not strictly, they're not, they're not mutually exclusive, right? For example, we see that Notion successfully has a free tier, um, which really helps for the brand. Folks love it. But in addition to that, they make substantive revenue from a credit card swiped next, next paid tier, right? And lastly, the free and paid tiers also inform enterprise go-to-market motions that they're ramping up right now. All right. Pick a thread from what you mentioned on the fan base, right? So we are seeing, uh, you know, earlier we had customer-led growth. Now we see a motion of uh, product-led growth. And in that, we have a subset on, you know, building out a fan base, which is nothing but, uh, you know, in, in another sense, it's all about building communities around what you're trying to solve, right? What, what do you think on, uh, you know, using communities as a strategy to build a successful business yeah, I think I think that's what a lot of companies have realized. You know, is the power of PLG, right? Right. Also, what a lot of open source companies are exploring as well. Open source takes that to the extreme. There's a community before there's even a free product, right? There's an open source right. product, and eventually, after the community is sufficiently large and and the product is sufficiently mature, and there's product market fit, then there's a cloud hosted version. Or you know, I mean, there's open source is another 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 topic of conversation where we can spend a lot of time on. Right. But generally speaking, 
Then there's monetization via cloud-hosted services. And then the enterprise versions are either, for example, um, you know, on-prem hosted or have security and collaboration features, right? So, so yes, I would say there are many companies that have successfully um, executed that motion to create community via open source, via um, freemium. Right. To successfully monetize upstream, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, to successfully monetize their their paid offerings both at the mid market and also enterprise levels. At what stage do you think uh, you know focusing on building communities as a marketing uh, channel is important? Do you do that very early on as a commercial product and not as an open source product? Would you start invest? Say for example, where Heads Up is at right now? Yeah. Would you are you thinking of building a community of GTM leaders now, or this is something that you do it after you have achieved a product market fit? So I would say the former, and that's still something that we're trying to figure out. But we think there's immense value around quote unquote building in public. Mm -hmm. We've seen that um, building in public, especially when when you're exposed to the audience that uh, is relevant for you. Um, results in a tighter product feedback loops, b much higher customer empathy, and c uh, much more brand exposure and community you know community fan fan base, which results in much better at customer acquisition down the line. Got it. Yeah, and also creates a huge amount of uh, loyalty, right? Yes, uh, between people within the community. Obviously, you know, uh, communities are a double-edged sword. You can have someone who is brutally loyal. Uh, at the same time, you know, the same community can punish you, uh, you know, if you don't serve the community well. Hundred percent, hundred percent. So that's why I actually think, actually, one of the things that I, I'm feeling more and more convinced about is that as software as a service, engineering and technical modes drop towards zero, the way to establish long-term differentiation is by a, building a category or well, this topic of category creation and B, having a community that really buys into this category as being yeah. something that's useful and the community that sees the problem and understands the relevance of the category. And this is something that David Cancel speaks at length about and has executed very well for Drift. And there's some really great podcasts that he, you know, where he walks through his methodology and how he spent a lot of effort to learn and, and, and execute on this. Got it. So we have been talking about a lot about uh, product-led uh, growth companies. Uh, and so typically for a product-led growth company, what, what does a good tool stack look like? Yeah. I mean, good is very different from what is a current tool stack, right? Right. right. So I'll start with what is a current tool stack. And, and the truth is on the go-to-market side, there are so many tools that it's hard to have, say, you know, a, a canonical or, or vanilla set of tools, but I can, I can kind of um, walk through some tools that folks normally use. Mm -hmm. So on the growth or marketing side, there's normally some sort of marketing automation platform, for example, a Marketo, right? That then sends leads downstream into a sales tool, a, a CRM, for example, right. a Salesforce or a HubSpot. Now, the average sales individual at AE, I, I believe, uses something like eight different tools. So there's um, sales enablement tools like Outreach and Sales Loft. 
There's productivity user interfaces like Scratchpad and Dually for individual AEs and SDRs to very quickly enter information or record and update Salesforce. There's conversational intelligence tools like Gong that uh, you know record and give helps managers give feedback and train um, AEs and SDRs on, on their talking tracks. There's lead generation and lead collection tools like uh, you know the sales whales, the chili pipers of the world. All right. I mean, there's a lot more other things that I for sure have, have missed out, but that's the sales ecosystem. And then on the customer success side, which is much, much more relatively much more immature, um, there are customer success tools like Gainsight, Tango, and as well as up and coming ones like Catalyst. Yeah. Now all of those are strung together, connected by thin, brittle integrations that pass, for example, data or a subset of data from marketing to sales, sales to customer success. We think that there's opportunity to rethink what that tool chain looks like, mm-hmm. the product-led growth world. And that's what we're trying to figure out in the long term. Interesting. So what, what's your long-term uh, vision? Uh, you know, assume that you hit product market fit, uh, you, know, you, you have got great traction amongst uh, product-led growth companies, suiting your ICP that's, that stands as of today. Yeah. Where do you see heads up, uh, you know, naturally evolving in this uh, data space? Yeah, so to answer that, let's go back to the problem prompt again. Right. Mm-hmm. The problem prompt is that there's very poor signal to noise ratios because there's an explosion of data, making it very hard for customer facing teams to decide who to engage, how to engage, and when to engage. So that is fundamentally the problem that the heads up vision, or actually that's our, that's our mission, right? To solve that specific problem. Now, what is our vision and what is our approach? Um, that is to be determined. But we can see, you can imagine that there's a data-driven approach, right? Because we're, for example, Power Rigs lead scoring right now, right? right? right. Through the combination of data into one single source of truth and then acting on that. So that's our first wedge. But what we do next is to be determined. Yeah. Got it. But one can imagine that on top of this data, we ask what else is doable? What else is feasible? And we build from there. Okay. Taking another uh, segue from here. Yeah. So if today a, com- a SaaS company is trying to look at product-led growth as a strong motion of sales today, yeah. what are some of the key building blocks that they should consider? Got it. So what, let, let me, as opposed to like, you know, offering out the solutions, let me, let me respond by saying here are, the, here are the general functionalities that need to be, need to be um, there. Number one, they need to have a very good understanding of product usage and other internal signals. And they need to understand how those signals relate to willingness to pay and willingness to buy. So that's number one, that's functionality. Number two is they need to have an engagement model where upon the identification of said signals, there's a a go-to-market process to, 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 to to close and upsell these individuals. Now that could be automated, it could be in person, or it could be mixed depending on the price point and the vertical, yep, and the suitability of that space to be sold automatically. Yeah. And then I would say from, from the post-sale perspective, likewise, there needs to be a very strong understanding of, yeah, exactly, what, what usage signals con- are, 
our leading indicators for churn, upsell opportunities, and generally customer health. And folks need to have a very clear playbook against those leading indicators. And lastly, the product needs to be engineered in such a way such that um, it can organically acquire users through some sort of, for example, growth loop where someone uses it would share, or, 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 or there's, a, there's a very methodical marketing way to generate these free users. Yeah. Got it. Fantastic. Let me, let me shift gears here and uh, talk, uh, pick, pick your thoughts on your entrepreneur journey, right? So talk to me a little bit of some of your key learnings and key unlearnings that you had to do as you got started with uh, Heads Up. Yeah. I think the key learning is that as a product manager, I like to think that I'm a very strong operator, that I can build product very quickly, and that I can build product and iterate very fast towards product market fit. What I've learned in this journey, obviously, you know, I haven't been at it for so long, is that uh, there's so much luck and uncertainty in the process, regardless of how good you are, right? That's number one. And as a corollary to that, market is really everything. Market, in my opinion, before founder and team. Because if there's a huge tailwind, if there's like huge willingness to pay, and if there's a gap, the pull from the market is incredible. And conversely, if you have a solid team and there's no market there, well, first of all, a solid team would you would you would you would say that the solid team would identify the market. But if you have a solid team and there's no market there, no matter how good of a product you build, it'll be very very hard to sell. And so, I think as an entrepreneur and also as a venture investor, market selection at the very beginning is probably the most important thing one can do. Hmm. Market selection is not a binary thing. It's not like, you know, I select the market today and I'm done. There's this concept of an idea maze that, that Chris Dixon and Balaji talk about and being able to pick a big general addressable market and execute on the idea maze towards something where there is sufficient pull, I think is a skill set that as an entrepreneur, if you're consistently good at, is extremely high expected value. Yeah. And that's expressly very different from, say, what a product manager would do day to day in a one to 100 product, right? Yes, right. That, that might be something a product manager needs to do that day to day in a zero to one product. But as an employee and, and as a PM, your search space is much, much smaller than as an entrepreneur, right? As an entrepreneur, your search space is literally everything. It's every market. You constrain that to say a sub market like you know sales and data or PLG and data like we do, but even then the search space is very very wide. So being able to deal with that uncertainty, being able to build conviction, and being able to iterate on the idea maze, I think are probably the biggest skill sets that you know I would look for in a founder. Yeah, so that would be a learning. Awesome. So uh, and I'm coming towards and uh, towards the end of the podcast. Uh, you know. What's been your uh, couple of Eureka moments, uh, you know, as you're building up uh, headsup.ai in a completely remote world today? Or, you know, share, share some of those uh, with us. I think being in a remote world, being able to work effectively in a remote world means having a culture that's appreciative of remote functionality. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually something that companies that, for example, were built before this post-COVID remote world um, might, might have trouble appreciating. Like one of the struggles we've had is 
you know, to deal with the intensity of work and potential burnout as folks are always on, right? Like personally, I'm, I'm up at 4 5 a.m. taking calls until say 12 noon, 1 p.m. And then after that, there's work. And at night, you know, the calls ramp up again. So there's really not an opportunity for me to stop working. And right. I think other team members feel similarly as well. So instituting, for example, notions of culture that allow for a longer term marathon as opposed to a sprint is very, very important. Yeah. And that might be less of an issue in the past. For example, when, when we were all in person, right? Like when everyone goes home at the end of the day, yes, we can work a little bit at night, but then that's it, you know, and then you come back at 9am in the morning. But for me in Singapore, I feel like I'm, it, it is possible to work eight, 24 hours a day, right? Like folks in America are awake, then folks in Singapore are awake when America sleeps. So having a culture of sustainability and being very explicit on the, 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 the resultant tactics of that culture, um, I think is very important. The other thing is, the other thing that we've learned is that um, there's very strong talent across engineering and non-engineering roles across the globe. One just has to look hard enough, right? Right. And, and I think that might actually be a tactical or a strategic advantage for startups who can master the, 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 a sustainable and effective way to work remotely. For folks who can master that, they're able to hire at a much higher quality or much lower cost. Right, yeah, absolutely okay. Yeah, in fact, actually, startups have been the, uh, you know, from a talent for democratization point of view, startups have had the biggest advantage in this uh, COVID world of accessing talent across the globe and building futuristic remote teams. 100%, yeah, right. I agree. Uh, some of the larger companies, uh, you know, still have these restrictions on their job boards, which says that remote only within their country uh, or remote or a near shore remote rather than trying to really look at a global remote uh, model. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the time zone issue is one that is not trivial to circumvent or right. overcome and requires a very specific work style or a very strong culture. Yeah. And folks that can solve that specifically, big or small, will will have a lot of advantages. This entire journey of uh, you know transitioning from a product manager to an entrepreneur Momo as we come to the you know towards the end of this podcast. What will be your key three takeaways if you were to look back for the product management uh, community that you would recommend as a skill or areas that they need to broaden their horizon? Yeah, so number one would be um, selling. I think as a PM, yes, you need to sell internally, but there's much less external client-facing go-to-market motion. As a founder, that's paramount. Being able to do that at the very beginning can make or break the company, right? And founder sales is especially dire or very hard because oftentimes you're asking someone to take a bet on something that either doesn't exist yet or hasn't been proven, right? So being able to successfully do that, having to being able to get that one design partner that is exactly the ICP can allow you to build very, very good product, especially if you're a product manager and can get exposed to all the pain points. So I think learning to sell and doing that in a very methodical and sustainable way for the first one or two years of the company from zero to 1 million in ARR is I think a very important skill that 
might not be consistently flexed as a product manager. Got it. Fantastic. This has been an amazing uh, conversation, Momo. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, you know, I really picked up some great insights. Uh, you know, the idea is analogy that you gave. Uh, having not many founders have this great clarity early on on their ICP. Uh, you know, so you know, I'm I'm very excited. Uh, you know, with your journey, and I look forward to be in touch. And uh, you know, hopefully, when you hit, um, you know, a huge revenue growth cycle, uh, we'll be happy to host you again to to get that part of the story. On, on our podcast again. Yes. So, so thank you for that. So thank you once again for being on the PitchCamp podcast today. Thank you so much. Fantastic. So this is it, folks. We come to the end of uh, you know today's uh, podcast, podcast number twenty-eight. Uh, this is this podcast is going to be available on all the podcasting uh, platforms on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google, and so on. So follow us on uh, YouTube, on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts and be in touch with, uh, with us at pitchcamp.in, your founder-led sales coach and your partner in your growth journey. With this, signing off and have a great day, all of you. Thank you so much.